seriously, we are in a, in a crisis that is unprecedented because it's different in many ways. It's not unprecedented in its scale, uh, in its nature. It's part of this broader historical context that's part of what the United States is. is. Welcome to Southern Futures. I'm Melody Hunter-Pillion with the Center for the Study of the American South. Our guests join us to have conversations about place and the future, and that means some discussion of history. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Mark Little, Executive Director of CREATE, co-founder of NC Growth, SmartUp, and Black Communities Conference, and former Executive Director of the Keenan Institute. This musician and composer of music is also a native North Carolinian with a PhD in geology and geophysics. Dr. Little, I want to thank you for being here. You have a very interdisciplinary interest and in, in work background, but your work at its core focuses on North Carolina's future. Uh, in terms of place, let's start with where you're from and how your origin story perhaps drives and motivates your work. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Whenever I'm asked about where I'm from, I always think about my grandparents. Uh, and I think for myself and many other people, thus the, the farthest generation you can typically go back where you had lots of contact with someone growing up. And so to me, that's, that's who I am. My four grandparents are all from the low country of North and South Carolina. If we want to phrase it that way, Eastern North Carolina, low country, South Carolina. And uh, my parents are both born in Washington, North Carolina, Beaufort County. Little Washington, uh, to some people, some people are offended from that town, but uh, Little Washington. Uh, I was born in Durham, North Carolina, and grew up in Chapel Hill. Tell us about your work with CREATE, NC Growth, Black Communities Conference. I know that's saying a lot, but the end goal, and tell me, you know, really how your background informs this work that you are doing back in your native state. I came back to Chapel Hill in 2011, kind of by accident and started working uh, at the Keenan Institute on some economic development work. And the person I was working with there also is from Eastern North Carolina. Uh, the Institute itself has always had an interest in economic development in Eastern North Carolina. And so from the beginning of my, my work at UNC, that had always been the, the core piece of it. And when we were applying for grants to start what would become NC Growth, Northeastern North Carolina was the initial focus area. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So one, one of the reasons is if you took, look at a map of North Carolina and you map all the counties that aren't doing as well economically, you have the most number of them all packed together in the Northeastern part of the state. So that's, that's one factor. But, but also for me personally, one of the motivating factors is the much longer, broader historical context of all this. So in your intro, you talked about how the role that history plays in things. And for me, history and culture is everything in terms of how I see the world and how I think other people act in the world, whether or not they recognize it or not. And so for me, the northeastern part of North Carolina is almost the most northern, northeastern extent of something called the Black Belt, uh, which is, again, if you look at a map, right? I'm, I'm a geologist, so I like maps also. If you, if you look at a map of North America, and you map by counties, and you map counties by percentage of uh, black population, you see this colored U-shape that starts in southeastern Virginia, goes through eastern North Carolina, low country South Carolina, uh, Georgia, cuts through the middle and south of Alabama, Louisiana, and it goes up the Mississippi River to western 
Tennessee, Memphis, et cetera. This is you know, a place where we had the largest plantations. Um, you had rich soils, highest populations of former slaves. And so initially, the concept, the, the vision for this work was thinking about where are people now uh, most suffering economically, but also was this places where there has this historic context um, that informs that. Often people forget in um, certain counties in North Carolina, we do have the largest group of uh, Native Americans east of the Mississippi, the Lumbee tribe. And so that factors into some of these counties with poor or greater economic disparity as well. There's all these layers, right? And so right now, our work is across North Carolina and parts of South Carolina, and we work every all across the state also with all sorts of people in places that have these economic disparities. This other layer, in terms of motivation, uh, is around people, peoples, right, uh, who have been historically disenfranchised for all sorts of reasons. So, and so for me, that motivation does also include Native Americans. For going back to this, the history piece and the culture piece, for many people in the United States, when you think of Native Americans, you think of people out west. But the first peoples who had contact with Europeans and Africans were in the eastern part of what is now the United States. And eastern North Carolina in particular has a deep and rich, rich history of interactions between Europeans, Africans, and Native Americans. And many, many of us who are from these places have in our lineage, in our history, in our past, people who were from all of these different continents. And in my own family, that, that is the case. Um, and so I recognize and celebrate that heritage that I have. And in the work that we do, we have made a very concerted effort to have really robust partnerships with all, many of the tribes in North Carolina from, from the mountains all the way down to Columbus County and Bladen County and in the south, southeastern part of the state. So, Dr. Little, in our current climate in the South and across the nation, the COVID crisis, we've got that, violence against African-Americans, civil unrest, all of these things seem to be overwhelming. Um, They also seem to be exponentially disastrous for marginalized communities, um, in particular in the rural South. How do we look at this sort of these layers of uh, crises that are striking these communities who already historically um, have these challenges? So you mentioned I'm executive director of CREATE. We have a team of people of all backgrounds. We hire graduate students of all different backgrounds. And there's a conversation I oftentimes have with them as a leader of this group, as a a manager, as, as someone who's helping to direct what we're trying to do. And then there's how I think about these things. And they can be different sometimes. For myself, I consider myself, I'm not an optimist, but I believe in trying if there's an ounce of chance that something could happen. So for example, I was mentioning we started our work in Northeastern North Carolina. There are many layers of reasons why the Northeastern part of the state has been for decades struggling. And if you really think about it for centuries, because slaves were struggling too. So when we think about the modern context, I think for me personally, having an understanding the historical context for the work that I do 
makes my perspective maybe a, a, a little less alarmed by what's happening. And while that doesn't uh, decrease my motivation to do the work uh, and to interact with people and to, to try to explain things in a way that other people can start to learn and start to understand things, for me personally, it is a fairly unbroken persistence of systems that were designed to take land from Indians, keep Africans subjugated, and as other non-white groups have come to the United States, to marginalize them in ways that are really complicated and difficult for them because they enter the system where they're this or that, and in some contexts they're on this side and other contexts are on this side. And it's, very, it's a very complicated disease that we've created here uh, for, for people. I oftentimes think about when I was in grad school, there's a friend of mine who was from Nigeria. And so he grew up in Nigeria, undergrad, had done some work, and then came to Rice University in Houston, Texas for grad school. And he joined the Black Graduate Student Association, which was maybe about half folks from the African and Caribbean and then half African-Americans, people who'd grown up in the United States. And I remember having conversations with him when he first came about why some of our colleagues had a particular focus on talking about race and racial interactions. And I said, you know what? Uh, Yemi is his name. You know what, Yemi? You're, the way your mind works is beautiful. I hope, I hope you keep thinking this way and keep thinking these are ridiculous things. But unfortunately, like two years later, I remember having come he's like, I get it. I understand. Because of the way he looks, he had started to see and understand the experience that his colleagues had been going through, and he'd been infected. So now he's infected with this disease that we all have here. The one thing I'll, I'll last mention is, obviously, with all these things going on, I'm having all kinds of conversations with people about this stuff. And I always like to root it in the Constitution of the United States, which clearly lays these things out. It talks about three categories of people. It talks about Indians. It talks about Africans. It doesn't say that word. It says slaves or enslaved people. I can't remember the particular language, but it's talking about black African slave people uh, and, and white folks. And that's from, from the gate, from, from the jump. That's what uh, this place is about. And so my understanding of what's happening now is in that context. And seriously, we are in a, in a crisis that is unprecedented because it's different in many ways. It's not unprecedented in its scale, uh, in its nature. It's part of this broader historical context that's part of what the United States is. is. Mark, between anti-Black violence, economic hurdles, the COVID crisis, it can be really nice to turn to art, music or literature, whatever form people prefer. Uh, what have you found yourself reading? Well, it's a funny question for me. I have three little kids at home. And so what reading has been for me for the past couple of months has been reading to them. I've been dreaming about having kids my entire life. So I had all sorts of plans for them <laughs> before they, they entered the world. But one of the things I, I think a lot about is being very deliberate about creating who they are. Obviously, as they grow up, they'll, they'll decide whoever they want to be. And one of the things that motivated this is interacting over the years many, many times with parents and kids of folks who've come to the United States from other countries. And very often, there's this point where the parents are upset with their kids because they don't speak their native language or they don't practice their religion or these other 
characteristics. And part of it is because where they are coming from, there's a whole host of things they did not have to do as parents because the whole society that they were in brought those things to bear for their family and for their kids. And then they're at a loss because they themselves as parents act as if they would in whatever place they were from. But because everything else is awash with information and culture from America, they don't, they've lost that opportunity to have that influence. And so for myself, I see myself in the same way. I am obviously a citizen of the United States, but I do not consider myself an American culturally uh, or even historically. And so it's incumbent on me to understand the culture and history of myself and my people and my ancestors and to as much as possible push as much of that on my kids uh, in the environments that I have control over. And so with all of that, uh, I'm very deliberate about bringing stories that come out of both the history and culture of people who are enslaved in the United States, uh, but also Africans uh, who were enslaved across the Americas, uh, Native American culture, as well as West African uh, culture. And then other things as well. So I picked two, uh, and because I couldn't decide, and so I'll read uh, maybe a paragraph from each. And so the interesting thing about these two stories is both of them, I found some connection to my family. So the first one is Wiley and the Hairy Man which some people may have heard before. It was a story that was told by black people in Alabama region. And my wife, who's from Alabama, she remembers stories about a hairy man. And so that really, having that additional connection really resonated with me. And, and this is a story that my parents read to my sister and I when we were little, but having that direct connection makes it even more real for, for me. And the other one I'll read a little bit of is called Little Eight John. And this version of the story is from the uh, low country, South Carolina, um, Geechee folks, Geechee story. And that, the story under that title doesn't have a direct connection with my family history, but some aspects of the story are my, uh, I can't remember if it was my mother or father recognized or remember, oh, I've heard that kind of chunk of that piece of that story. And so that I, I like that layers. That's why I chose these two. We read plenty that I have no personal connection to. So her version of it is called Wiley, His Mama, and the Hairy Man. And so I'll read a couple paragraphs near the beginning, but not right at the beginning. And I, I like to do voices when I read to my kids. Uh, so I don't know that I'll do all the voices and things, but I, I may. <laughs> I love this. This uh, is more entertainment know, we'll than I was counting on. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens here. Well, I hope the Hairy Man is somewhere away and nowhere around here, Wiley said. He picked up his axe and start to work. But before he could begin, he spied the hairy man through the trees. Hairy man just a grinning at him. Hairy man was ugly, even when he grinned. He was coarse-haired all over. His eyes burned red as fire. He had great big teeth, with spit all in his mouth, running down his chin. He was terrible-looking hairy man. Don't you look at me like that, Wiley said. Don't you come near me. But the hairy man kept on coming and a-grinning. So I'll stop there. So that part, because it's, it's kind of anticipating, like, you want to read, you want to, like, what's going to happen with the hair bit? <laughs> um, the, uh, that's, so the re one of the things that's amazing about this story is it's about Wiley and his mama and this monster called the hairy man and the relationship between this boy. And, and in this telling of the story, 
there's a preface that his father was killed by the hairy man. So the father is, is out, out of the picture um, in a physical sense, though he is an inspiration for kind of some of the work that Wiley does, which is going out to chop down wood and, and help his mama. But the, the, the relationship between Wiley and his mama and how they talk to each other is, is, pretty, is pretty wonderful. So really, the hero of the story, in some sense, is the mother because everything the boy is doing are things that she's, he comes home and says, like, what should I do now? And she says, okay, do this, do that. And she's a conjurer, right? So she, and so she knows, all right, well, try this and try that. And he goes out and tries these things. And ultimately, the hairy man comes to their home, and she has a plan to trick him, which, which ultimately works. Um, but their interactions remind me a lot of how my mother interacted with me, but it's more about empowering and giving people tools. And so that's, that's, this mama is like that, right? So for this one, what I'll do is I'll read the end of the story. And we'll just leave it at that. <clears throat> and sure enough, one dark, still night it happened. Old, raw head, bloody bones rose up and came walking. He come after little eight John. And in one flicker of candlelight, that old, raw head, bloody bones turned little John into a little dark spot. There was that dark spot like a grease spot on the kitchen table. The next morning... Little eight John's mama take a wet rag and wash off that grease-looking spot on the kitchen table. Must have missed the grease there last supper, she said. She rubbed and rubbed at it until the dark spot was all gone. Wasn't not a streak of it left. And that there was the end of little eight John. What happens to all little children who never mind? <laughs> so, you know, before that, before that end, uh, little A. John basically was being terrible. <laughs> he was being terrible. And uh, his mama warned him, you keep being bad, and uh, old raw head bloody bones will come and get you. And, and that's what happened. <laughs> For uh, people of African descent in the United States, that linguistic connection is, for most of us, is completely lost. In one of the few places where it's still, you know, where it's not, has not been completely lost is in Low Country in South Carolina and Georgia. And uh, my family that is there uh, don't speak Gullah now, but my mother, is that's where her people are from, and her father uh, is called Baba James, all right, Baba, which is f father or from, from West Africa. And I first heard that. I didn't first read it. And so for me, it's one word, but it's, it's special. And so my kids call me Baba. And... You know, I understand from reading all the all that broader context, but having it be an oral tradition and having it being told from one person to another person, not from a book, is powerful and really important. Mark, I want to thank you for introducing me to those stories. I had not heard them before, but you do have children. You do use these stories to both entertain and instruct. I want to talk about, though, how you um, 
How do you reimagine the future of this region and what it will hold for your children? And how would you like your work to shape the region of that future for them and for other folk here in the South? What we really focus on is trying to work with people and in places that are economically distressed and bring more wealth, resources, power, agency, job opportunities, economic development, business development to those places. And my, from that perspective, my, my hope is that the work that our team is doing is able to change some of those places, but also uh, potentially able to change how other people think about those places and people. And there's a lot of things that we do to create that surface area for interaction between someone from Charlotte, for example, and someone from Scotland Neck, uh, if you know where, might know where that is. Um, and so if, from the work context, that's in a nutshell, some of the longer term goals and, and hopes on the North Carolina level. Um, recently, maybe in the past year or so, really been trying to think about how to elevate the work and how we work on a regional and, and national scale, not necessarily in doing more projects on the ground in places, but um, actually even in the formation of this center called CREATE, uh, it was really an attempt to combine some of the academic research that's being done around economic development on a national level, thinking about what are the things that make different places more successful than other places, and combining that with this on-the-ground work that I've been part of, where you understand the real personal context, and you know people and people running businesses and community leaders and uh, tribal leaders, et cetera. Thinking about how do you bridge those things in a way that can inform national or state-level policy decisions uh, and have a direct impact on people and places that we're talking about. What this place will mean to my children, I'm not sure. I think that there's a lot of how the United States has been and is defined that is because of the southern region of the United States. One of the hopes that I have with this current context is that more people can begin to see not just there's this black man who was murdered in front of everybody's eyes, that being able to connect that to how we fund public education, uh, being able to connect that to why does the property values in a neighborhood start to decrease once you have more than 5% of the homeowners being of African descent, right? So, um, and even COVID in itself, the disproportionate impact that it has as a disease on people. So these, these are all very fluidly connected to me and, and are part of this broader system and part of this history, it's very intentional. Again, back to the country, very intentional. And it's built into not just things, these symbols that we can all, not, well, actually, I shouldn't say all, that many people can agree on, like Silent Sam, or that maybe most people can agree on, like this recent murder, but all these other pieces to it, right? Which I, again, if you're saying, what was my hope? You know, there's a little hope, <laughs> a little hope that there might be more people who are starting to see and be willing to make these deeper connections about things. You got to do a lot of a lot of thinking and rebuilding um, to have that that real that real change. Dr. Mark Little, who's saying there's hope, but also a whole lot of work, and he is doing it. We want to thank you for being here with us, and thank you to our listeners. Be sure to join us for our next episode. For executive producer Dr. Melinda Maynard Lowry, associate producer Ellie Little, and sound editor Mark Meyer, I'm Melody Hunter Pillion. 
Southern Futures is a podcast powered by the Southern Futures Initiative, a new collaboration between the College of Arts and Sciences, UNC Libraries, the Center for the Study of the American South, and other units of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Southern Futures, reimagine the American South.